guys feel it i think that was super incredible mashup right so um welcome everyone to the tori says show i thought i'd give you guys a little bit of a mashup day uh setting fire to rain which is impossible right and i know all of you can feel it you know something's up you just don't know what so today we're going to do something interesting i'm going to talk about obviously history so you could see where we're at I'm going to tell you about quantum computing. I've talked about it for three years. I told you where mine is. I'm going to explain to you technology that exists that you probably can't fathom. And I'll tell you why you can't fathom it and why people, you know, seem to repeat the same things over and over again. Uh, those of you that are on Twitch, I just wanted to say I totally love the raid yesterday. We're going to do another one today. It could be a talk show. It could just be people chatting. It could be, uh, you know, um, another music channel. I think I really enjoyed that guy with the yacht. You saw his face. He had like 10 people in there. And then we all bum rushed him with 2,000 people just running into his room. Uh, he totally enjoyed it. Spread good energy is so good. And I have to say, it wasn't until um, November that, I started to enjoy music again. Not the noise that they produce now, but actual music. Uh, music obviously resonates with frequencies. Now we've talked about frequencies before, the duality of it, of uh, you know how every particle has duality. Uh, basic science, right? Basic science. And I guess it was the first time uh, for me in a long time uh, that, uh, you know, this, this November, uh, that I suddenly felt the urge that I wanted to listen to music as a person. And it really sucks, right? Because people would be like, well, what kind of music do you like to listen to? And I say, you know, yeah, I like fifties music. I like some eighties, some alternative rock, but I really didn't like music anymore. And because I couldn't vibrate only because in my persevere, obviously, I'm going through things. I, I think everybody goes through things. And um, uh, I strongly believe that, you know, when, when we're in that pocket of uh, resistance to embracing what we're going through or facing what we're going through, we pretty much shut out everything. So uh, I really enjoyed that mashup. It was, it was pretty awesome. I'm, I'm going to keep that on my uh, playlist. So for those of you that are on Twitch, we're going to do a raid at the end of the show. I really enjoyed the, the yacht DJ with his cat admiral snack bar that was very obedient sitting on his uh, counter. <laughs> uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, and as you know, I troll a lot of uh, channels on, on Twitch, DLive, YouTube, Facebook uh, to see what people are talking about. And yesterday I stumbled into one Twitch channel that had zero viewers. Um, where there were a bunch of uh, millennials uh, chit-chatting about politics and expressing uh, their dismay in what they're seeing. And uh, for me, I, I was kind of pleasantly surprised. I was talking to myself. I was the only one in the room chatting. I really didn't care. I was just sitting there making my comments. But it showed that there's a lot of people out there that, that need that nudge, need that information to just make everything click. And everyone's seeking that click. 
Everyone's seeking that little source that'll just make everything perfect. Now, I have many, many times said my most favorite, uh, well, my superpower is, is language, and that's because I see language as math. Math is a language too. And one of the most in fun things I have ever done, and people <laughs> fun, really, that's your idea of fun, is, um, you know, obviously I dabble in, in, in groups that uh, analyze predictive analytics. Uh, there's a little group that I have that's been going on for, it's going strong for decades. Uh, I mean, I joined it in the 90s uh, as a kid, um, where we discuss how we can apply certain algorithms and string theory to almost everything. And um, when I was in, in college, um, getting my degree in molecular and cellular biology, my most, uh, I would say the most fun I had was uh, teaching physics. So I TA'd for the physics department um, because I really enjoy physics. Physics is, I think, the basis of everything. I mean, it's glorified. Physics is math. Okay. It's just math with terms. Okay. And I, I, I loved it. It was like, I felt so good just to see all these other adults finally kind of just open their eyes and be like, whoa, this is fascinating. Right. And I, and I taught not the units of mechanics because I, uh, you know, I have a great dislike in false information and the axioms and the values that are provided uh, in mechanical physics, such as rotational speeds, gravitational speeds, I completely, it makes me upset. <laughs> it makes me upset because people are doing the calculations with wrong numbers because someone said so. But I was teaching the electromagnetic, um, uh, more um, quantum physics side of things. I, I really enjoyed it. The The uh, head of the physics department was uh, really... Um, uh, <laughs> very individual. He had like a mustache that would turn out in the corners, you know, like, like that, um, John Barron Twitter thing, you know, with the turning corners. I kid you not. Um, but anyway, one thing that a lot of people don't seem to understand is that the way humans think is to copy the way other people think, uh, with variations, you know, everybody likes that group think. And, um, the way I think to, 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 to help because, you know, my, um, is to go down to first principles, meaning something so bare bones. If everyone did that, they would have a more objective view. You would ask basic questions. Like for those of you that are watching, there's a popcorn, uh, container with popcorn in it, Right. So when you would question the popcorn container, the questions that you would ask is, okay, obviously I know it's a container, but what is the container made of? Is it paper? Is it plastic? Is it a dye that was incorporated in the plastic before? Was it melted? Basic foundational questions that strip any previous um, thoughts you may have on that. The reason I say this is is because the, the human tendency to imitate is is insane. I mean, that's that's what we are. We're 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 creatures that like to feel comfort. This is why we look over to someone else for confirmation when we speak. So it's important that um, 
we have this individuality. You know, um, we're so focused on, you know, for example, the popcorn container on the shape of it that, you know, we're constantly comparing it to others. We're living life by similes and analogies to what problems we are seeing rather than seeing the problem for itself. And, and that is how people think wrong. You know, that's the wrong way to think of things. You have to literally place yourself outside of the box. You have to identify what your assumptions are of a situation to say, well, I'm already predisposed to think this, right? And once you identify them and embrace them, then everything starts to make sense. You get, you get to take a step back. Why do I say this? Well, there's a lot of things that all of you missed. A lot of people that were talking, insurrection acts, that were talking, posse comitas, all of this, but you forget, you forget that these have arisen before. You forget how all of this has come into play. You forget <laughs> that there was another contested election once upon a time. And you've totally forgotten that. <laughs> you've totally forgotten it. Because we're not taught history anymore. We're not. And that sucks because we're not taught history. It, it pains me to say it, but there's so many people that don't know actual history. And, you know, I'm not saying this to be condescending. I'm, I'm identifying the problem and I'm trying to help you see it yourself. So I'll take you back. I want you to, to think of this. It was back in, um, ooh, I want to say 2008. Was it 2008? Um, there were articles of impeachments drawn for Bush. Do you guys remember that? Uh, do you guys remember how um, Alan Grayson, uh, you know, a representative from Florida, pretty much pointed out that the NSA court order crushes and obliterates the Posse Comitatus Act. Did you guys remember that? I'll play that little audio snippet that I have. What's wrong with this, first of all, is that there's a firewall between the Defense Department and the CIA on the one hand, and the FBI and the Department of Justice on the other. One protects us from international threats, the other one protects us from domestic threats. Since the 1870s, when Congress enacted and the president signed the Posse Comitatus Act. And this order crushes that distinction. It eliminates it. It obliterates it. It kills it now and forever. What was that? That was something Brennan and Clapper did. Let me tell you what these clowns did. And I, and I actually expressed to them my detest for this. What they did was they, I've, I've said this before, how the FBI just thinks that they're an intelligence agency. All the walls come down. They're all acting as a mashup, just like that song <laughs> that we heard, all like a mashup. So there is no distinction between domestic enemies and international enemies. And if the domestic enemies are actually within your area, mm, you can't tell the difference. They've completely separated. Brennan and Clapper did that. Brennan and Clapper did that under Obama. Because remember, Obama had pushed the martial law police state. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. And people don't seem to get that. 
there was uh, posse comitus uh, violations um, in throughout the whole Obama administration. Nobody, nobody thinks about that. And so when all of you were screaming, we need, you know, to get martial law going, we need to, you know, Insurrection Act. No, no. What we need is to take a seat and let's do this by the book and let them do it the way it's supposed to be. We are seeing the illegalities come up like nobody's business right now. Right now, there is no one that can't see what is going on. I was very, very excited to see that um, Emerald Robinson of Newsmax put, uh, you know, uh, she set fires on what we were discussing yesterday, which is the power grid, right? Let me, let me show you. I was, that was pretty interesting. She asked the right question. The question that all of us sent notification to our attorney generals about, which is, you know, Biden just allowed China into our power grid. Take a listen. This was quite interesting because she, she nailed it. She completely nailed it. And I was so excited because if you think that this is just going to, people are just going to sit down and roll over, you're wrong. Those of you that took the knee and bowed out, you're wrong. Why did he do that? Hi. And then I'll come to you, sir. Go ahead. Thanks, Jan. Um, in an executive order that the president signed last week, he also suspended a Trump administration executive order that was particularly aimed at keeping foreign countries, specifically China, from interfering in the U.S. power grid. But he suspended that for 90 days in that executive order last week. Given what you said about China today, why did he do that, especially related to something so critical to our national security of the power grid? I'll have to, I think president's view on, on our relationship with China, I, I um, tried to do my best to convey to all of you. I'll have to check on that specific piece and we'll, we'll circle back with you directly. So in other words, they sat there and told the world, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. China, bad China, bad China. Then why did you just give China full control over our power grid? Good question, isn't it? That's the question all of us are telling our AGs. Yo, this clown just signed off that Putin or Xi Jinping or, you know, Rocket Man from the comfort of their bedroom can flip a switch and turn off our power because they feel like it. That is a violation of national security. Now, since we can't remove that clown right now, how's you as an AG do your job and secure my state's power grids and say, look, hey, Biden, if you want to do that stuff, you and Joho, go ahead, torch the crap out of D.C. You're not doing it in our state. And your attorney generals are supposed to be doing that. They're supposed to be your lawyers. They're supposed to be supporting you. And this is the letters everyone was sending out. Uh, in the Telegram room, someone put up a nice draft. I copied it. I altered it to be made for Ohio. And then I shipped it off, mailed it off and emailed it to every single email I could find on that website. They got a copy of that letter. And every single one of you should be doing the same thing because you're demanding them to respond to it. Your states have their own constitutions. Your states act as independent states in a more bigger union. They represent you in your state as a whole to present to the federal and executive government. If all the states got up and said, yo, Joe Biden, you nuts, 
You better stop what you did. You got to eat some crow right now and fix this because we're not going to let this happen. Oh, then people start to see. People start to see what? Truth. People start to see what? People for who they are. People start to question things. So in order for us to question things, we should visit history because history tells us everything we need to know. So I wanted to um, share with you a very, very, very old uh, C-SPAN recording. (sighs) Funny, funny how this comes. You know what? Before we do that, I think I should remind you guys what the Posse Comitess Act is. Um, So that way we're all on board and and we know what's up, okay? Let Let me find a nice little, I think there was a PBS clip thing that I found. Give me a second. I'm pretty sure I did. I'm going to find it. Let's see. Where's my PBS? That way, you know, because I've had people, you know, sit and say, well, you're saying it. I don't see anyone else saying, you know, the whole we need uh, confirmation from other sources kind of thing. Because, you know, people like to mimic other people. People like that. So I'll, 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 I'll roll with that. Give me a second. What? Where'd it go? I have it. Oh, geez. Where is it? Um, so now I have two screens and I still don't have enough room for stuff I do. This is so sad. So sad. So sad. So sad. Okay. Um, I found it. Okay. My apologies for that. So sad. Right. Tori, what's wrong with you? Uh, yeah, I have like 150 things open. Give me a sec. All right, let's pull this one up so you guys can see it and kind of get the gist of who, by the way, Ohio. Ohio again in the house, right? Give me a sec. So interesting how that works. Here we go. In 1876, the wounds caused by the Civil War were healing, but racism was about to leave some ugly scars. The man at the center of that conundrum was Rutherford Hayes, the Republican governor of Ohio. Hayes was an honest lawyer and a minor Civil War hero. Responding to the scandals of the Grant administration, he ran as a reform candidate in 1876. Ironically, he had one of the shadiest victories ever. The Democratic Party had regained strength in the South, so Hayes lost the popular vote by three points. But the results in some states were disputed, and Republicans supposedly cut a deal. Hayes was awarded enough electoral votes to win, but federal troops left the South, allowing racist Democrat governments to take over. Reconstruction ended, and the South became a stronghold of segregation. To his credit, Hayes still tried to be a reformer. He fought to appoint independent guys to federal jobs instead of letting senators install their cronies. After Democrats took over Congress in 1878, Hayes used vetoes to block them from repealing election laws protecting Southern blacks. He restored some power to the presidency, but he promised to quit after one term. So he packed up his beard and rode off into obscurity. So what does that tell you? So that was a one-term president who Pretty much, as they said, the Congress actually held a deal. There were disputed elections. Congress cut a deal. The Democrats wanted their slaves. Uh, He didn't uh, want to give them slaves. So what he did, uh, I'll just tell you what. The liberal side of things consider this a wrongdoing of him, that he abandoned 
Black Americans, they forget that it was the Democrats that demanded it. Now, here's what happened. There was a lot of intimidation in regards to voting. This is why it happened. So um, there had been troops in the South to help protect Black Americans to vote during that election. So the army was used to help protect them. And what this was found to be seen by the Democrats who wanted their slaves, right, was as as um, election intimidation. So using troops to um, oversee and conduct orderly elections was found to be intimidating. And so it was wrongful. So he, Rutherford, actually created the um, Posse Comitas Act, which pretty much limits the powers of the federal government um, in using military to enforce domestic policies, like civil unrest, just so that you understand. So um, I wanted to tell you something, though. Here's the deal. The U.S. Army is part of that. Um, you know, Air Force is part of that. The Navy has their own regulations, so they're kind of part of it, even though it's not like within it, right? This was actually enacted by the 45th United States Congress. Um, the Marine Corps and the Navy aren't mentioned, but they're subject to Department of Defense regulations. The Coast Guard and the Space Force are not included. Um, and they're explicitly given federal law enforcement authority on maritime and space laws, respectively. So this would exclude Space Force um, on being able to um, regulate things. I just wanted to point that out. Uh, in if you guys remember with George Floyd, uh, Washington D.C themselves uh, brought up the National Guard troops to suppress the protest. Do you remember that? Without the President of the United States invoking the Insurrection Act, um, even though he kind of said, I'll do it, I'll do it, because he let them do it. So a set of troops from um, the D.C. National Guard uh, was uh, used as a state of militia, um, which means they weren't subject to the Posse Comitas restrictions even though they're considered a federal entity. So it was sketchy, but, you know, they got away with it. Um, that's why they were deputized, to avoid that. Um, National Guard troops uh, can engage to support operations or missions undertaken at the request of the president or secretary of defense. Um, Senator Tom Udall and Jim McGovern described that as a loophole to circumvent the Posse Communist Act restrictions and introduce legislation um, at that point to close it. And that was actually um, pretty interesting that they had put that forward themselves because of that loophole. And what people don't seem to understand is that the Democrats have been using a lot of loopholes lately, uh, many of them actually. And in 2020, in August, um, they claimed that President Trump and Barr used a loophole to deploy the National Guard in U.S. cities, which may be true. 
and they want to close it. But we forget that they just invoke that the mayor did of D.C. and others to protect the Capitol kind of seems illegal. So I thought we could go with the Posse Comitas um, Act. Uh, let's just go to, let's warp back to, I think it's 2008 that we're going to start with, uh, where articles of impeachment were introduced. Um, and I, th I think a lot of people have forgotten this. And it turns out it's a Democrat representative introducing these. And he uh, was the representative of Cleveland, Lakewood, and Parma in Ohio. Ohio Secretary of State John Kenneth Blackwell, acting under the color of law and, a and as an agent of George W. Bush, to issue a directive that no votes would be counted unless cast in the right precinct, reversing Ohio's longstanding practice of counting votes for president if cast in the right county, willfully allow his agent, Ohio Secretary of State John Kenneth Blackwell, the co-chair of the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign, to do nothing to assure the voting rights of 10,000 people in the city of Cleveland when a computer error by a private vendor, Diebold Election System, incorrectly disenfranchised 10,000 voters, willfully allowing his agent, Ohio Secretary of State John Kenneth Blackwell, the co-chair of the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign, to ensure that uncounted and provisional ballots in Ohio's 2004 presidential election would be disproportionately concentrated in the urban African-American districts. A, in Ohio's Lucas County, which includes Toledo, 3,122 or 41.13% of the provisional ballots went uncounted under the direction of George W. Bush's agent, the Secretary of State of Ohio, John Kenneth Blackwell, co-chair of the committee to re-elect Bush Cheney in Ohio. In Ohio's Cuyahoga County, I know in Ohio's Cuyahoga County, which includes Cleveland, 8,559 or 32.82% of the provisional ballots went uncounted. In Ohio's Hamilton County, which includes Cincinnati, 3,529 or 24.23% of the provisional ballots went uncounted. Statewide, the provisional ballot rejection rate was 9% as compared to the greater figures in urban areas where a substantial African-American population is located. D, the Department of Justice charged with enforcing the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, and other voting rights laws in the United States of America under the direction and administration of George W. Bush did willfully and purposely obstruct and stonewall legitimate criminal investigations into myriad cases of reported electoral fraud and suppression in the state of Ohio. Such activities carried out by the department on behalf of George W. Bush in counties such as Franklin and Knox by persons such as John K. Tanner and others were meant to confound and whitewash legitimate legal criminal investigations into the suppression of massive numbers of legally registered voters and the removal of their right to cast a ballot fairly and freely in the state of Ohio which was crucial to the certified electoral victory of George Bush in 2004. On or about November 1st, 2006, members of the United States Department of Justice, under the control and direction of the administration of George W. Bush, brought indictments for voter registration fraud within days of an election 
in order to directly affect the outcome of that election for partisan purposes, and in doing so violated the Justice Department's own rules against filing election-related indictments so close to an election, F. Oh, so here you see that over 10 years ago, we were in the same place. These were articles of impeachment under, uh, you know, that they had filed because they were pissed that people were intimidating people to vote. They were throwing indictments. Hence, why President Trump was unable to do anything. While everyone's sitting there saying, he has the power. No, you got to pay attention to pre precedent. They're very crafty. Because this has happened before again. There were actual people fighting on fixed elections. And here we are where they fixed elections before. But nobody was paying attention. I mean, do you know what you were doing in 2004? Do you know what you were doing in 2008? Probably not. You probably didn't even know half the names of the people that actually controlled your nation. <laughs> half. That's a stretch. You probably knew one. Maybe the president's name. Okay, maybe the vice president. Maybe you knew who was the secretary of defense. You know, a defense secretary or whatever. That's about as far as you went. Look, history repeats itself. Emails have been obtained showing that the Republican National Committee and members of Bush Cheney 04 Inc. did, at the direction of the White House, under the administration of George Bush, engage in voter su suppression in five states by a, a method known as vote caging, an illegal voter suppression technique. Agents, G, agents of George W. Bush, including Mark F. Thor Hearn, the National General Counsel, the behest of George W. Bush, as members of a criminal front group, distribute known false information and propaganda in the hopes of forwarding legislation and other actions that would result in the disenfranchisement of Democratic voters for partisan purposes. The scheme run under the auspices of an organization known as the American Center for Voting Rights. Wait a minute. Wasn't that the center that was doing the same thing during this election cycle? Oh, wait a minute. So they used the same tools Bush used on us this year, oh man, really? Hmm. Sounds super sketch, right? No, sounds super planned. These people have a playbook. I've said this so many times, a playbook, a playbook. And the thing is, once you realize the playbook, which is imitation, like I said, everybody likes to copy each other with a few variations. And considering technology has changed, well, that, you know, kind of puts it out, right? But they actually use troops to intimidate too. You're going to see that because I'm going to take you through this past decade with little snippets so you can see where you're at now is nowhere new. You're just awake and you can see it. Was funded by agents of George W. Bush in violation of laws governing tax-exempt 501c3 organization and in violation of federal laws forbidding the distribution of such propaganda by, by the federal government and agents working on its behalf. Okay, so it's been forbidden. This is from, you know, over a decade ago, but they were doing just that during these elections. But now it's permitted because the Democrats are doing it. H. 
members of the United States Department of Justice under the control and direction of the administration of George W. Bush did for partisan reasons illegally and with malice of forethought block career attorneys and other officials in the Department of Justice from filing three lawsuits charging local and county governments with violating the Voting Rights Act of Af voting rights of African Americans and other minorities, according to seven former senior United States Justice Department employees. Wait a minute. How does he know that? So SESs blew the whistle on Bush, obviously, because they were Democrats. But didn't uh, IG Horowitz say that he can't investigate SESs? <laughs> okay. He can only look at like regular employees, like administrative assistant, maybe a couple lawyers that are in SESs. But here he is saying they blew the whistle on the Republicans because here's where they played the game perfectly. Uh, you know, some of them were none the wiser, like this Dennis, probably none the wiser that the Republicans and the Democrats all made deals. I mean, I just showed you the deal they did to give Rutherford the election as long as they get to keep their slaves in 1878, right? Muna. The what? 76, 77, right? 1877. The elections were uh, 1876. And in 1877, in February, the Republicans and the Democrats shook hands and said, look, we're just going to give it to him. We're going to work together. We'll make sure you guys can keep your slaves. We're not going to have federal troops there enforcing that you're not allowed to have slaves, even though Abraham Lincoln already fixed that 10 years ago. Uh, since you guys want slaves so bad, Democrats, let's just make a deal. And this is where the Republicans and the Democrats became one. There was no switch, <laughs> okay? There was no switch. There were just Democrats everywhere, racists everywhere, power-hungry clowns everywhere, and they just united forces. So it's been like that for over 100 years. This Dennis guy obviously doesn't know. He thinks that, you know, he probably still thought at that point that there was some partisanship because they give you the illusion that you only have two options, you know, the no-exit clause. You can't pick anything else. It's only one of these two. I, members of the United States Department of Justice under the control and administration, under the control and direction of the administration of George Bush, did legally and with malice aforethought derail at least two investigations of possible voter discrimination. According to a letter sent to the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, and written by former employees of the United States Department of Justice, the voting rights section. Members of the United States Election Assistance Commission, under the control and direction of the administration of George W. Bush, have purposefully and willfully misled the public in violation of several laws by, one, withholding from the public and then altering a legally mandated report on the true measure and threat of voter fraud as commissioned by the Election Assistance Commission and completed in June 2006 prior to the 2006 midterm election, but withheld from release prior to that election when its information would have been useful in the administration of elections across the country because the results of the statutorily required and taxpayer-funded report did not conform with the illegal partisan propaganda effort and politicized agenda of the Bush administration. You know, I mean, why didn't anyone just take that 35 count impeachment article 
that they had introduced back in the day and rewrite that to file something against the Democrats. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but totally makes sense. You don't even have to do the homework. These clowns did all the homework back then for it. Remember, the Democrats used these nonprofits to spread propaganda, you know, where they were collecting signatures. And at that same time, they were bar ballot harvesting, too. But why didn't anyone do that? Oh, let me guess. Tori, you're not a lawyer. Shut up. That's it. Two. Withholding from the public a legally mandated report on the disenfranchising effect of photo identification laws at the polling place, known to disproportionately disenfranchise voters not of George W. Bush's political party. The report was commissioned by the EAC and completed in June 2006, prior to the 2006 midterm election, but withheld from release prior to that election, when its information would have been useful in the administration of elections across the country. Three, withholding from the public a legally mandated report on the effectiveness of provisional voting, as commissioned by uh, this elections uh, commission, and completed in June 2006, prior to the 2006 midterm election, but withheld from release prior to that election when its information would have been useful in the administration of elections across the country, and keeping that report unreleased for more than a year until it was revealed by independent media outlets frustrated the conduct of the 2006 elections. For directly harming the rights and manner of suffrage. I wonder who helped them find all this election meddling stuff. Had nothing to do with my meeting with Alan Spector, did it? I'm just saying, a lot of people sit there and give me hate. I get a lot of it from Bergie. Why didn't you come out with this earlier? Why didn't this? Because no one's going to listen to me. Huh? No one's going to listen to me. No one listens to any voice that has been in the belly of the beast. That's the problem. Because they don't understand that in order to be able to fix something, you have to be within the belly of the beast to fix it. And, you know... This is how it goes. People can't fathom that. Hmm. It's as if, you know, you want to take out someone, you infiltrate. Infiltration is a very useful tool. And so what needs to be understood is that everything you're watching has been pre-planned. Everything. Now, I know a lot of people, well, you had this, you had, why didn't you send someone this? Well, they already had it. The point is... It shows the limitations. You can't, you know, I'll put it this way. I, I, I get a lot of communications from people there. Well, why are we doing something if it's already fixed? Why are we doing something? Okay, think of it this way. You know, for those of you that are parents, right, and you have kids, uh, when they were younger, you know, they'd do something like pick up their toy, right, and take it five inches you know, further. And you're like, great job. See, that's how awesome it is. And then even though they did nothing, cause it was already done for them, they feel like moving it from one side of the box to the other side of the box. They did something because you were teaching them the skill of moving something across and making it tidier or just, just doing it. Why? Because you taught them the skill of independence 
to not have to wait for you to move the teddy bear from the left of the box to the right, but that they could do it themselves. So giving tools to people while things are already, it's like, it's like your mom, when she was baking cookies and stuff, the whole dough was done. And then she would say, sprinkle some chocolate chips. We can't have it. When chocolate chips were already there, you just put like a half a teaspoon and you thought you did something incredible. But what you learned was, this is how you put chocolate chips into the batter. You know, this is what I'm inching at. We have to do the work in order to understand how the work is done. We can't just sit back and wait for someone to do it because then we end up like those people with no bones on the Wally chairs from that cartoon Wally floating around sipping 7-Eleven Slurpees, okay? And that's what's important. This is why we have to work. Because if we don't work, we get lazy and we're on floating chairs sipping Slurpees. And because we've been lazy, you've probably missed that Bush was being impeached. For what? Election meddling. Did you know that? Oops. What? No. I'm pretty sure that out of the 7,000 right now live on the front-facing streams, maybe 100 of you remembered that Bush was being impeached. Yeah, maybe less than that. That's the way it is. We need to learn. We need to understand. They have been impeaching and pushing against this. This guy, Dennis was doing whatever Alan was telling him because they had everything they needed. How many times had I anonymously reached out to say, hey, they're doing this. Hey, they're doing that. Hey, I've, I've said it. This is it. Nobody remembered that they tried to impeach him for election meddling, for putting out these canvassers and collecting bets and knocking the, the same crap the Democrats did during this election, aside from the mail-in ballots, where he also promoted absentee ballots. I'm... And all these people sitting at the polls, everything you saw happen in 2020, Bush already did. And then the Democrats did again with Obama. Wait till you see that. You're going to be like, wait a minute, how did I miss that? But I thought I'd start with the impeachment because that's where you're going to be like, wait a minute. I didn't know that they tried to impeach Bush over election meddling on 35 counts. For suffering to make them secret and unknowable for overseeing and participating in the disenfranchisement of legal voters, for instituting debates and doubts about the true nature of elections, all against the will and consent of local voters affected, and forced through threats of litigation by agents and agencies overseen by George W. Bush, the actions of Mr. Bush do the opposite of securing and guaranteeing the rights of people to alter or abolish their government by way of the electoral process, being a violation of an inalienable right and an immediate threat to liberty. In all these actions and decisions, President George W. Bush has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and commander in chief and subversive of constitutional government to the prejudice of the cause of law and justice and to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Wherefore, President George W. Bush, by such conduct, is guilty of an impeachable offense warranting removal from office. Article 30. Okay, so we're going to leave it at that. So I just wanted to remind you that all the antics that these people had conducted in the past are the same ones that they've used now.
So now we're going to go into the Obama era. Okay. First, we're going to go into martial law and posse comitas. This is a report from November 17th, 2009. You're going to be like, wait a minute, what? No, martial law? Where? Oh, well, here it is. Here it is. Here's where we were so busy with life, so busy with picking curtains and doing whatever that we weren't paying attention. That's what they bank on. People forget and they're too busy with life, debt, and having children to pay attention. And you know what we did? Exactly what everybody should have done. Trusted the media to do their job. Tonight about an army combat brigade being trained to deal with civil disturbances in the United States. The Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 generally prohibits federal uniformed services from carrying out domestic law enforcement duties, except in cases expressly authorized by the Constitution or an act of Congress. Critics say the brigade's training goes against one of the founding principles of our country, separation of military and civilian government. Luis Giovanni has our report. They've spent 30 months on the streets of Baghdad. Now the 1st Brigade Combat Team of the Army's 3rd Infantry Division is back in the USA. The Army Times reporting, quote, they may be called upon to help with civil unrest and crowd control or to deal with potentially horrific scenarios, end quote. The question arises, why? And isn't that what the National Guard does? Infantry Brigade is designed to engage an enemy with maximum effective force and destroy it. That's not the sort of thing anybody wants to see in, in the streets of the United States. Almost 5,000 strong, the brigade is based at Fort Stewart, Georgia, under control of Northern Command, who tells CNN, quote, the primary purpose of this force is to provide help to people in need in the aftermath of a WMD-like event in the homeland, so that were they called to support civil authority, those governors or local state jurisdictions that might need our help, that they would be responsive and capable in the aftermath of an event like this, end quote. On Capitol Hill, questions about how the Pentagon determined that a thinly stretched military with two conflicts underway could spare these troops. That's a misuse of assets. Those assets can be deployed, I think, more efficiently somewhere else when you have a guard that you can call up on a moment's notice. Historically, the posting is unusual. In modern history, Army troops have been used at extraordinary junctures. Under the first President Bush to contain the 1992 riots in Los Angeles, under President Lyndon Johnson in response to Detroit's 1967 riots, and in the grips of a depression by President Herbert Hoover to contain Army veterans demanding their bonuses. All actions, says historian yes, Robert exactly. Dalek, undertaken exactly. by... Unpopular presidents uh, on edge about uh, their capacity to lead, uh, to uh, invoke public support for whatever it is they think needs to be done. Wait, so are you saying that popular, unpopular presidents that don't have the support of the people were the ones that were using army and military troops to force support from the people? I see. And what we have during that period of time was Barack Hussein Obama coming in, right? We had all those lawsuits flying out about who he really was. And we had Brennan in the background working to silence and judges writing threatening notes that they will be destroyed if they don't stop asking questions about Barack Hussein Obama. Lisa, the Army Times journalist tells us that the story has generated intense public interest and four weeks into a flurry of questions about the report, the Army finally contacted her and they requested that she publish a clarification that containing domestic civil unrest was not 
part of the first brigade mission. Louise Schiavone, thank you very much for that report. Okay, so now let's time hop somewhere else. Let me take you to, um, let's go to 2020, 2010, okay, 2010. We're going to 2010 now, where Obama did this again. Oh, but you know, he did, so it's okay, because it was, it, it was, it was their guy. Tonight's Fox Focus, the New York National Guard has been part of missions around the world, but they also have a very important one right here at home. It's to keep the drugs off our local streets. Their technology and training is now free to local police departments and agencies if they want it. As Fox 23's Kristen Lobbin explains, no one's been turned away if they ask for help. Dust and desert, the images most equate with the New York National Guard on the front lines in the Middle East fighting the war on terror. These images are pictures of another fight, a fight here at home. The war on drugs is an ongoing war. Our people are committed to this fight. It's a domestic fight. They firmly believe in it. The National Guard's counter-drug task force providing not only the people, but the equipment law enforcement may need to make drug arrests and seizures. We can go right on the scene with this or, or into a car. You can sniff around with it, or you can take a swab of a surface and put it into the machine, and it'll tell you what it is. Using ionization, counter-drugs machines can detect chemicals, explosives, narcotics on money. Wait a minute. So weapons that we created for the war on terror, supposedly. Weapons that we created, that we piloted in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Iran, and in other hostile nations. They now brought them here to the United States and they wanted to use them on you. Sounds so familiar. Yet, for some reason, it seems like nobody's getting it. Weapons, even fabric. A simple swab can tell you if that surface had contact with those substances. Nothing. And a simple sweep of an undercarriage or a scan of a car can help find drugs or weapons being brought into the capital region. While the under-vehicle inspection system looks for traps or voids where anything could be taped or bolted in, the mobile vehicle inspection system takes it one step further. Basically, it's an x-ray. And if you zoom in on the trunk portion, you can see the rifle that's laid across the bottom there. With a warrant, a department can request a scan. Then, with a swing of an arm, gamma rays outline the car and its skeleton. We scan the car and we can give them images of areas that they might want to look at and we'll identify anomalies for the law enforcement so they can check into the car further. That way they don't have to rip the car totally apart. We can show them spots with points of interest where they might want to check to find something. The Schenectady Police Department, just one agency that is called in the guard for help. In 2009, a driver was arrested, his car brought to the station and scanned after an officer smelled marijuana coming from the car. No drugs were found, but that traffic stop and scan, part of an investigation against the suspects. Our investigation continued on that individual for almost another year, and he eventually was taken into custody for drug trafficking charges. It's a great resource that we certainly um, don't have the, the money to afford, um, but a resource available to us at no cost, so it's a, it's a, it's a big help to us. Counter-drug also helps departments from the air. National Guard aircraft helping with observation, tracking, and finding a legal growing operation. So that was 10 years ago when they wanted the military to kind of join forces with the police. Let's go to the next, um, <laughs> the next one. Just so you can see how this happened. Wait, let me see. 
Here's the follow-up to Martial Law that we watched on Lou Dobbs. Hold on. Here we go. Interesting. New questions tonight about an Army combat brigade being trained to deal with civil disturbances in the United States. The Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 generally prohibits federal uniform services from carrying out domestic law enforcement duties, except in cases expressly authorized by the Constitution or an act of Congress. Critics say the brigade's training goes against one of the founding principles of our country, separation of military and civilian government. Luis Giovoni has our report. They've spent 30 months on the streets of Baghdad. Now the 1st Brigade combat team of the Army's 3rd Infantry Division is... I want you to pay attention that this was um, from 2014, and the previous one used the same footage in 2010. Back in the USA, the Army Times reporting, quote, they may be called upon to help with civil unrest and crowd control or to deal with potentially horrific scenarios, end quote. The question arises, why? And isn't that what the National Guard does? Infantry Brigade is designed to engage an enemy with maximum effective force and destroy it. That's not the sort of thing anybody wants to see in, in the streets of the United States. Almost 5,000 strong, the brigade is based at Fort Stewart, Georgia, under control of Northern Command, who tells CNN, quote, the primary purpose of this force is to provide help to people in need in the aftermath of a WMD-like event in the homeland, so that were they called to support civil authority, those governors or local state jurisdictions that might need our help, that they would be responsive and capable in the aftermath of an event like this, end quote. Now, what I wanted to demonstrate is that when this question came up again, they just reused the same footage. So you have to ask yourself, what's really going on and how is this all going on? <laughs> so they're just reusing information? I don't understand. See, what many people don't seem to um, appreciate is that the President of the United States was unable to utilize what you wanted him to utilize. Because there's precedent. They've already done this before. And only unpopular presidents have to use martial law. Now, that doesn't mean, that does not mean that our military has an oath to upkeep. That doesn't mean that other things aren't happening. I mean, take a look at this. I mean, I'm just going to leave it like that. But, um, okay. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is for governor and she tweets out president trump endorses sarah president trump president trump yeah president trump hmm. but he's not president or well you'll see see there are a lot of things that people can't explain so i'll leave us with uh just a little bit of an update right on um, what's happening. I want to play a little spot, just a minute of Greg Kelly talking about this, bringing back the swamp. And then what Jim Jordan had to say about Portman. Funny how Ohio's coming into focus. Like, when did we start saying that Ohio is going to be setting the fires? Just saying, right? It kind of seems like, wait, we were talking about Hunter Biden. That comes into focus. We're talking about Ohio. That comes into focus. But, you know, just good at researching, I guess. Ahead of time, of course. What? what I'll do as president what Donald Trump has. It. I'll fight for you. And look closely. 
right now. Does it look like Joe Biden is fighting for us or is he just along for the ride? I think he's just kind of going where they tell him and doing what they tell him to do. It's very bizarre to watch, actually. Um, and in some ways, though, it's back to the old weird pattern that we had before Donald Trump, where when you see a riot, if it is a left-leaning riot, it's okay. Tacoma, Washington right now is basically uh, on fire, right? You've seen the problems in Tacoma, Washington. Nobody seen air in this administration. It burns. People get in the faces of cops, throw rocks, bottles at them. The cops have to push back. This is just uh, Sunday night. This isn't a historic occasion. It's just no big deal. Again, when it's conservatives rioting, that's bad. And it is bad, by the way, but it's bad when the other side does it. Right now, the Biden administration, they don't call it uh, what we call it, do they? All right. They are the real domestic terrorists. But see, you have to see it. We can't tell you. You have to see it. This is why it had to be that way. You had to see it. Now, here's another thing you're going to see. This clown here. Let me put him into focus. Okay, I still can't get over the fact that Sean Spicer is such an infiltrator and his bib. I can't. I just can't. I can't. I can't. I can't stand him. He loathes President Trump and he pretends. That's okay. We infiltrators everywhere. You already have a big eye right there in between your forehead. We already know. Today. Holy smokes. Yeah. Thanks for being back. Um, before pleasure. I get to the policy and to everything that's going on at the White House, big breaking news out of your state of Ohio today. Senator Rob Portman announced he's not running for reelection. I got to ask you, you've got to be right mm -hmm. on the top of that short list. Are you going to run for the U.S. Senate? Oh, well, good to be with you guys. Uh, I mean, we'll see. Look, I'm focused. I'm focused on my work on the Judiciary Committee. We just got our, our members and new members who are going to come on as Republicans. And frankly, what I'm focused on is this, this crazy impeachment trial. Yeah. I mean, the Democrats have been trying to remove President Trump from office before he got there. Now they're trying to remove him after he's left. So yeah. I mean, this is crazy. Um, and that's what we're focused on, doing everything we can to make sure this thing gets over with and, uh, and the president is not convicted in the United States Senate. Congressman, I got to talk to you about the precedent that this says, because for one, you have the, no hearing in the House at all. We like this precedent. Do you know why we like it? What's the one thing that for those of you that have been following me throughout all my Twitter accounts, what is the one thing that I would tweet? The letter I am the little peach emoji 44. See, this is how it works. Impeach. 44. If he's out and you're impeaching, well, huh, fair game, guys. Fair game. As you saw yeah. last week, um, and we're just an hour away from Nancy Pelosi delivering this to the Senate, they're essentially trying to just cut the political future out of Trump's hands that he could yeah. ever run for anything. You know, what happens in three to five years when the right wants to do this? You know, and what is the left going to say? No, it's a bad precedent. Now it looks like uh, the Chief Justice Roberts may not preside. That's a bad precedent, I think, when you when you move. Oh, Skodaskate forward. It's coming uh, in, I, coming into focus. One more week. Liked a few of the things that President Biden said last week in his inaugural about unifying. But how do you unify when you're trying to impeach a president that's already left? How do you unify when you impeach a president with with no due process? How do you unify when you have the cancel culture trying to 
prevent 75 million people from even speaking, from even exercising their First Amendment liberties and having a real debate in this country. So this is not healthy for the nation, what they're doing. And as you point out, this sets a bad precedent as we move forward. It's a horror. I mean, you can now use it to go after your political enemies after they've left office so they don't present a, a threat to you in the future. This is. You mean like the way we're going to impeach Obama? All righty then. So now that we kind of have an idea of what's going on, <laughs> there we are, impeach 44. And I did say February 6, 2020, that February 6, 2021, Scoutersgate will have officially landed. It started around my birthday last year. It made its debut, debut, the hard debut, May the 5th, 2020. But here's where it's coming full circle from the moment it was supposed to happen. Oh, because you know what? I just guess really well, really well. That's all. But that's not true. So after this quick break, I, I picked a nice song. Um, <laughs> I want you to um, enter into my world of quantum computing. I'm going to let you in on some things about technology people don't discuss that exists. And, um, and maybe you'll understand a little bit more. Pulling a little bit of my pants down. Not all of them. World was on fire, no one could save me but you. And it's strange what desire can make foolish people do. I'd never dream that I'd meet somebody like you. I'd never dream that I'd miss somebody like you. And I don't want to fall in love. And I don't want to fall in love with you. Yep, totally in love with my country, totally in love with all of you. Uh, I thought that rendition is pretty sweet, and I liked it. So before we enter the new technology, well, it's not new. I just thought I'd um, help you see how other people are saying the same thing. Um, I found this clip. Someone shared this. I don't remember who. But I wanted to play this part because a lot of people are asking me to chime in. I don't want to chime in. I've already told you. I just wait for other people to expose exactly who they are. Listen to this. Here's my new stuff. Um, so we got a few avenues, but... I'm not going to lose the videos. Biden will leave uh, the free world. Um, Biden will leave the free world in into chaos. I guess that meant lead. And he will go down with it. 
100%. In peace, Biden, 100%. Um, you are amazing. Thank you so much for the super chat. Thank you for joining the Tatum Squad, Bernice. Uh, Leah, uh, hi, BT. Uh, God bless you for all that you do for all of us conservatives around the world. I just want to ask, would, would ever come, I guess, would you ever come to Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, and do a live panel? Yeah, if you, if you know some connects, if you got connections, I'll come out there and do a panel. I like him. I like him a lot. If you want to book me, go to my website and go to booking at theofficertatum.com and give me the details and my, my, my assistant could book it and get it, get it ready to go. Did you see Fauci funded the creation of coronavirus? I didn't see that, but I'm not surprised. Uh, wearing a jockstrap as a mask is probably more effective. <laughs> so just do it uh, so grandma doesn't die. I know it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's so, y'all know it's so stupid. This stuff is so stupid. Lord Jesus, how long are we uh, really giving Biden before it takes over? Six months, year? I, I'm thinking about six months. I'm thinking maybe 100 days, six months, something like that. Because he already messing up. Phil, thanks so much for the Super Chat sticker. Holly, thanks so much for the Super Chat. Biden's travel ban, Christian ban. Yeah, yeah, right? Equals a Christian ban. Biden's travel ban is a Christian ban. But they're not going to use terminology. Republicans ain't either. They're just going to ball up in the corner and cry. Brandon Strzokker has been arrested by FBI, and they're, they're a way to help him with his legal cost, question mark. He helped wake up a lot of people and need our help. Hey, you you on your own. If you want to support Brandon Strzokker, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a good relationship with Brandon Strzokker. I think he's a fraudulent person. I think he did all that he did for the money, but that's not, that's not my thing. I've seen text messages that he sent Candace disrespectful text message he's been sending out to people. I don't support him. I have nothing to do with what happened to Brandon Strzokka. But if you guys have been packed by Brandon Strzokka and you think he's a great guy, then feel free, go and search out his, his stuff and go and support him. But for me, I, I don't support Brandon Strzokka at all. He's a fraudulent person. There's some people that you that you may not know of that are frauds. Behind, like Ali Akbar. Behind the scenes, I know. But in front of the scenes, people don't know. And I don't normally say it because I don't want to get people all in their feelings. Brandon Strzokka may have changed your life. Don't worry about his, being a, him being a fraud. Change your life, support him. But for me, I know too much. Like, I, I can't support people like him. He's a complete fraud. He's doing, like a lot of stuff, I believe he's doing it for money, fame, and power. That's what he's doing. And, and some of these people are so good at it that they, they'll be able to grift you and you won't even know what happened because they, they they put a face on and make it seem like they really care. And then and then when you catch them behind the scenes, they don't really care. They 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 drinking and, and I'm not saying he's drinking. I'm just giving an example. They're drinking. They're trying to sleep with people at conferences. They ain't who you think they are. You catch you catch them behind the scenes when they don't have that face on. They behind the scenes like man, I'm not even conservative. People are so dumb. They, they I mean some people are grifting. I didn't heard people tell stories. I didn't seen it with my own eyes. I didn't seen text messages. People running for all, they all fake, man. Y'all, y'all, I'm telling y'all, I'm not just saying this because it's me, but like y'all really lucky because y'all who support me, you support a dude that's real. I keep it 100. I don't care if people don't want to follow me. So, you know, he spoke up. But I've said this before. I don't unless it's necessary. And the only reason I have been talking about Ali Kakbar, whatever you want to call him, Akbar, Allahu Akbar, this infiltrator, right, was because that he was proximal to the president. Okay? 
And that's the only reason. There are a lot of people that have a lot of handlers that are grifting like crazy, that are losing control. So Scammy Davis Jr. is just one. And I'm really hoping that they've got Straka in a box and he's singing like a bird about Ali Akbar. That's all I'm hoping for. Because if Straka hands over Scammy Davis Jr., then we get to the real money. See, money, 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 money is all they care about. So I already has a Telegram channel. I was I, I typed a few things I wanted to say to him, but I just left it. I was like, ah, leave it. It makes me resonate on a lower thing, even though I laugh. Because I'm like, dude, I told you in March, straight up to your face. You go near the administration, I'm going to break you so hard. And I sent a whole folder on Ollie Scammy Davis Jr. Everything I had, March 2020. And this is why he came so hard with Shadowgate. Because he knew. Everybody knew. Weapon of mass destruction, of psychological destruction being deployed. And how do they do that? By mimicking quantum computers. Now, I'm going to take you into my little realm of uh, nerdiness today. And I'm going to introduce you uh, to an element on the periodic table. It used to be called columbine. Now it's called niobium. A lot of people, unless they steal work, don't know much about it. Uh, but um, I think it's important that I introduce you to this uh, specific metal. Uh, and what it is. It's actually quite popping. For those of you that have the ability to invest, I'll tell you what, if I had the ability to invest, I'd be investing in this. And this isn't like, I'm telling you what I would do. I'm telling you what I would do. And you'll understand why. Take a listen. Hello, my name is Ari Polcheski. I'm an experimental physicist. And today I'm going to talk about niobium. Um, I have a piece of niobium here. Um, its symbol is NB. It is a element. Its atomic number is 41, and which means it has 41 protons. It also has 51 neutrons, so it has an atomic mass of 92. Um, it's a metal, um, and it's relatively ductile, as in it's relatively soft. So niobium is actually used in making uh, steel. Most of the niobium in the world is added to steel for uh, hardness and durability. And um, it's usually added in a very small amount, like 0.1%. For comparison, I brought in some everyday metals. This is a piece of aluminum, and this is a piece of stainless steel. Um, in general, niobium is about the same hardness. This is air, airplane aluminum. It's about the same hardness, uh, but it has about the same mass um, as stainless steel. It's a superconductor, which means below its trans... Okay, I have to stop this one second. Niobium, he says, has about the same hardness as stainless steel. Stop. Stainless steel is actually composed of a small percentage of niobium. So I had to correct this guy. Mr. Verified Experimental Physicist, Tori has to educate you. So steel in itself to become hard always has about 1% to 2% niobium in it. Um, actually, niobium is used by Tiffany's for color. Um, it's actually as strong as titanium. It's an insane conductor. If you can keep that, it has a high, um, you know, heat. Like it'll emit, like if you conduct electricity through it, 
um, it has a high point of tolerance. Um, it'll still have some exothermic, meaning, okay, let me speak English, right? <laughs> it'll still emanate some heat, but this thing is replacing gold. And you'll understand why. And you'll understand where um, it is to be used. It's uh, quite incredible. Um, the colder you can keep it, the faster it can conduct. Uh, I'll let this guy finish out. Transition temperature, uh, the resistance goes to zero. So for example, if I have a battery and I attach the leads to each side of this and I flow current through, um, some heat will be produced because there's resistance. Um, if I cool it down uh, below its connecting transition temperature, uh, the resistance actually goes away, so no heat is produced. All right, so um, this is from the Department of Energy. Um, when was this video from? It was from 2013. <laughs> 2013. So I'm going to tell you things that aren't really available unless you know to look for them. Um, so that way you can understand why I say the six inches between my ears. Uh, you'll understand a little bit more. So we're going to go to this video, which is... Uh, which was done in 2018, um, where someone titled it Niobium, a metal which replaces gold. Okay, so before this starts, I want to explain to you, for those of you that are listening on podcast, uh, you can find my stuff on Twitch, um, YouTube, as long as I'm still there. So that's Tori Says News and Tori Says Show channel. Uh, you can find me on DLive um, and Facebook as long as I'm there on the Tory Says page. Um, now, the fun thing about this metal is that not only is it an incredible conductor, and if you can keep it low on heat, it'll conduct for like forever, but it also uh, allows you to change colors. I told you Tiffany's uses it in their jewelry at a small percentage for color. Now, why do I say this? Have you ever seen those movies where they show you uh, an aircraft that just disappears? Camouflage, right? Well, apparently by uh, passing current through this metal, you can manipulate the color that it emanates. And if you obviously can mirror something onto digital, like a camera of your surroundings, you can translate that into certain frequencies of electricity that you want to pass through this metal. Okay, I haven't patented any of this, so if any of you guys are out there that are entrepreneurs listening to this, run with it and, you know, just, just you know, go with it. Okay? But um, it changes colors. And not only that, it changes colors not only in the actual metal, which you're going to see in this, but when you shine light on it, it acts differently too. And this is very important. I'm showing you the applications that are non-biological. We're going to delve into the biological portion too. Uh, and I'm very well versed on that. Uh, this technology has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, a lot of people don't understand it much. Uh, I picked these two simple, you know, videos. This one is pretty cool. He's conducting experiments that normally, uh, you know, you shouldn't try. But niobium 
is uh, a metal that, you know, is only, I think only in Brazil and Canada are the majority of where they get mined. Um, there's other places, but they're not on the map, just saying. So um, there are a lot of ways that you can uh, digitize this metal. Uh, for one, I believe that I'm giving away a million dollar idea right now. So can I consider this my patent? But if we were to use a sheet of niobium and find ways to conduct electricity uh, to be able to, I don't know, manipulate the colors uh, of it, uh, it could possibly uh, lead to having a single slate, non-crackable screen uh, to work on. But that's just me um, breaking the rules. Hello everyone, today I'll tell you about the metal that can replace gold, about niobium. In the periodic table of chemical elements, niobium is placed in the fifth group between vanadium and tantalum. It's got its name in the honor of Niobe, the daughter of the ancient Greek king Tantalos. And this is not a coincidence, because the properties of niobium and tantalum are very similar, and at first sight they are quite hard to distinguish. Niobium is mined from the mineral columbite, where tantalum is also present. Because of that, until 1949, in the US, niobium was also called columbium. As in the 19th century, American scientists sometimes considered tantalum and niobium the same element. Now, containing niobium from ore is purified from tantalum and other metals, and so pure niobium pentoxide is acquired which is then consequently dissolved in hydrofluoric acid, thereby obtaining complex niobium compounds, which are then reduced by the metallic sodium to metallic state. After such a process, what is obtained is a high-purity niobium. If you compare its appearance with tantalum, then you can immediately see the difference in that tantalum has a more shiny surface. Through it might be just the way they produce these rods. Also, niobium is about three times cheaper than tantalum. Due to its high plasticity, it's easy to make a niobium foil, which is much harder to distinguish from the foil of tantalum. Although, there is one way, as the density of niobium is almost two times less than that of tantalum. Therefore, these metals can be easily distinguished by means of scales. Also, the melting temperature point of niobium is 250 degrees less than that of tantalum, meaning that my gas torch will never melt this niobium rod. The only thing that the burning managed to achieve is it slightly oxidized the surface of the metal, since with strong heating niobium can react with oxygen in the air, forming a niobium oxide 5. Due to its high melting point and the relative chemical resistance, one of the first commercial applications it had was as a filament in old bulbs, but later on it was replaced with tungsten. In dilute acids, niobium does not dissolve at all. However, under the influence of electricity, this metal behaves more interestingly. Like tantalum, niobium can be easily anodized in reverse its surface can be colored in many ways by controlling the thickness of the oxide film on the surface of the metal. This is what I indeed decide to do, using my new voltage converter. 
which from 30 volts makes an adjustable DC voltage up to 120 volts and even has a screen for convenience. In my opinion, this is a very convenient solution, as commercial anodizing device costs around $200. Similar to how I did it with Tantalum, I first decided to anodize niobium in a solution of table salt of about 10% concentration. I so he put salt in the water. Um, it, you know, in order to increase the conductivity of electricity, because, you know, salt water actually conducts electricity more if you're in a, you know, in regular water that's unsalted and a lightning strikes you, uh, the conduction of electricity is a little bit slower than that, which is almost instant in salt. Connected niobium to the anode, that is to the positive of the current source, and as a cathode I use the tantalum anodized plate. Through when anodizing in a solution of a table salt, niobium behaved quite badly. First, a brown oxide film appeared, but beyond that nothing interesting happened. When the voltage increased, the metal simply began to dissolve. Apparently, the chloride ions for niobium are much more aggressive than for tantalum. I started to think that maybe I accidentally broke my source of current, doesn't seem so. It works just fine. Then I realized that it is mostly probably a matter of choosing the electrolyte and went for an answer to the almighty internet. And guess what I found? A bunch of links to online shops for buying kits to anodize tantalum and niobium. And just one, one Carl, American forum, when one of the users mentioned sodium tetraborate. Through on YouTube, of course, there are a lot of videos where a man takes a powder called TSP, TSPPF. If you decipher TSP, it means triphosphate. Through the packaging mentions that it had no phosphate. What is happening? As a result, this substance remains foolishly encrypted. Commerce in all its glory. Okay, Afro. Maybe there are some scientific articles on this topic. Of course, there is. Even a fresh one by Japanese year 260. But, as always, current business people demand a coin for science. The article has a price tag. After several unsuccessful attempts, I finally made a more or less working electrolyte, which is a solution of sodium tetraborate, or simply borax. Concentration here is about 2 grams per 100 milliliters. Apart from borax, solution of an ordinary soda is also suitable. By the way, while I was experimenting with different electrolytes, I found one interesting effect. In the solution of sodium phosphate at a voltage of 110 volts, the niobium plate began to be widely proto-anodized with a spark discharge. Sparks run on the surface of the metal, leaving behind a great trace of oxidized metal. It looks very fascinating. Eventually, after a series of failures, niobium succumbed and began to shine in different colors depending on the voltage applied, and the higher it was, the more interesting the colors became. This photo shows how the colors of anodazite niobium vary with a different voltage. When the voltage reaches 120 volts, we get a beautiful light green color. It is also interesting that the color... Okay, so as you can see, um, and I'm going to explain for those listening on the podcast, this, um, this Russian guy, you know, just went at it and just got some foil and wanted to uh, just play with it. And what he realized was, depending on the voltage that was passing through, there would be another color that um, niobium would change to. And um, I'm just going to rewind like five seconds because I cut him off um, the train of thought. But you can see there's various colors on the spectrum 
that um, were able to respond in the way he did it, which was super bootleg. He could have electrocuted himself, but he was like, you know, it's the cheaper way. That's why he had a disclosure on his video saying, uh, don't do this. We get a beautiful light green color. It is also interesting that the color of an anodized niobium depends on the lighting because the film covering the metal is very thin. The color change happens due to the different thickness of the niobium oxide film on the surface of the metal. And the color we see is based on the applying light reflected from the metal and light that has passed through the oxide layer. As a result, we have obtained several pieces of colored niobium, but this seemed to be as not enough. So I decided to do something more beautiful and worthwhile. I printed a vector DNA model on a printer, made embossed with the help of a good old hammer, and cut it off. As a result, I now have a niobium billet, which can be given almost any color. I decided to make it blue. The voltage here is about 35 volts. After that, I put it out of the solution, took a brush and soaked it with a borax solution, and began to paint with it on the metal. I can tell you that it looks very fascinating. The only problem here is that when the voltage is high, the electrolyte boils and the patterns may not turn out to be clear. As a result, I have come out of this with a beautiful trinket from niobium. In my opinion, as first attempt is not so bad. However, it doesn't really look like a gold here. So I made another one and anodized it to the gold color at voltage of 60 volts. After that, I increased the voltage to 95 volts and made some beautiful blue dots. The second trinket looked much more presentable than the first one. I think that if you don't have money for the expensive gold ornaments, you can safely use anodized niobium or tantalum. It depends on your taste. In the year 2003, Austria even issued commemorative coins of 25 euros, the core of which consisted of anodized niobium. They like this unusual color of the metal. However, nowadays, in addition to those aesthetic applications, niobium in its pure form is almost often used to create super powerful magnetic fields, since at 9.2 kelvins, pure niobium acquires the properties of a superconductor, that is, it loses absolutely all internal resistance. If we cool niobium with liquid helium, then it actually becomes a superconductor. Because of this, this metal was the first of the metals that was used as a high-temperature superconductor. Such properties of niobium are now used in MRI scanners and for the cooling of quantum computers. The Large Hadron Collider uses about 600 tons of niobium and tin alloy cables, and in the future they plan to install superconducting radio frequency resonators from pure niobium. However, still 90% of niobium produced at the moment goes into the production of superalloys, which has some unique mechanical properties and are resistant to deformation and corrosion under strong heating. Such alloys are used in cosmonautics for the production of rocket engine nozzles and in jet engine designs. In the end, we can say that niobium is a very useful and amazing metal 
capable of easily distinguishing itself as gold, so that you cannot tell, as well as participating in scientific discoveries in the Hadron Collider. So um, that was an interesting uh, video. And what you needed to gather from that is that this metal has is uh, very diverse. And he introduced you to the fact that it's being used in quantum computing, in, uh, you know, the sesame portals, um, you know, <laughs> CERN, and um, is uh, a magnet and a very, very, very stellar superconductor. So I'm going to take you to another place of quantum computing. Um, I'm going to introduce you to quantum computing. I found a very good nutshell clip that we're going to watch. I'll interject, uh, of course, um, when it gets a little bit too complicated. Uh, but the, the thing that I, I want you to take away is to understand when I tell you the six inches between my ears, I want you to take that at face value while you watch this. And while you understand that niobium is used for alloys, right? Like, like he said, and I'm telling you that niobium is used in, in steel uh, to give it hardness and to, um, you know, make it stronger. But niobium is also used, well, has been found to do things that are extraordinary that not a lot of people know about. And this extraordinary would be regrowing bone. What? Yes. So we'll discuss that. Uh, Possibility of crossing. One thing that um, we think of when we think of metals is uh, that they're heavy or, or light, right? And that their structure is such that um, they have no buoyancy. Uh, that they simply are inert. But to understand quantum computing, you have to understand it resonates down to the atomic level. And we've talked about resonating frequencies. I've kind of tried to, um, it's kind of like building blocks um, to be able to understand. This clip may be a little over a lot of people's heads. So it'll be the first introduction because what we'll do is we'll revisit this video later. Now, why am I telling you this now? Because what you're about to see in February is understand just how much more technology we have than what they are telling us. You must understand that if, if, if I know this quite well and I can tell you, you know, I knew about graphene and niobium from when I was a kid. And that's because I went to like special school and, you know, I guess nerd stuff, government nerd stuff. But what you're going to see is the things that you focus on is the problem. For example, um, a lot of people are like, oh, it's 2021. Where's the flying car? Right. That's something that you hear a lot. Where's the flying car? Well, we have flying cars. It's just that you don't realize that the plane you just hopped on to fly over to your friend is literally a flying bus. You just have the idea that it's supposed to have wheels or look 
like it. Remember how I said that the way humans think is that they use these similes. They have already this predisposed notion of how something should be. And like I said, people would be very disappointed when they figure out who someone is because in their mind, they have this, you know, Gandalf looking dude or, you know, a team of like 50 buffed up hot ex seals. Right. And they'd be totally disappointed, you know, if it was someone like you, right. <laughs> Just saying. So a lot of people seem to have pre, uh, they have notions already. So, uh, we'll call them biases, right? These assumptions of how you want to identify something. So when you think of a quantum computer, you instantly think of a room full of servers, right? Or, you know, some underground facility in Antarctica that may have a lot of computers uh, and servers that Google has, but I'm just saying. But that's because the human mind is so limited. It's limited to be able to think outside of it. Like I know that this Niobium episode, hey, Elon, if you're going to use that shh on your batteries, you better give me a hat tip. I want a free Tesla. So um, I'm just saying we need to stop thinking of things the way we've been trained to. This is how you can see things more objectively. You step back. What is your assumption on a flying car? That you're going to see something like from back to the future. Because that's what the movie showed you. And that's what you think a flying car is. Or what the Jetsons had with the little bubble and then, you know, the little rays going behind it, right? You have this idea of it going into a garage in your house or when we already have it. So in, in order for you um, to... Um, yeah, I'm looking, <laughs> everyone's taking my, I guess I've been asking Elon Musk for a Tesla for like forever. And now that I actually need to get a car and I'm saving for one, um, uh, Tesla would be great. It's a write off for you, Elon. And I'm giving you niobium. I can help you on that. I'm very well versed in it. But anyway, um, <laughs> I digress. So if we step back and, and we, and we accept, here's my predispositions here are my assumptions. Now, let me put them aside and think differently. You'll understand what quantum computing is. And once you can conceive that notion, it's incredible. I'll explain it this way. When I was introduced to chemistry, I loved the whole physics behind it, right? The way things would bend, the way things would be in organic chemistry. Like that was my spiel. I, I think I even made Dean's list because I, I, there were so many classes that I wanted to take and I wasn't allowed to by the university that I had signed up to like colleges and other ones just to take it. And I had taken one class of uh, organic chemistry just to fulfill it. But I had, uh, you know, delved into organic chemistry like when I was a kid too. Um, but I loved it because it made so much sense to me because I could understand it and I could see it. Yet inorganic chemistry, I found frustrating because I couldn't fathom that something inert had organic properties, even though I knew inert items had organic properties. Why? Because I had that assumption. The minute I put that assumption aside, right, that something that doesn't breathe or metabolize can actually have biological interface and it will respond just like an organic atom would, then it all made sense. I knew what my assumption was. A rock doesn't breathe. Metal doesn't breathe. Niobium doesn't breathe. Therefore, it is not going to behave. An atom of niobium is not going to behave like hydrogen or 
oxygen or nitrogen. You see what I'm saying? I dismissed it because it doesn't metabolize. Where in fact, you know, as, as a conglomerate, right? Where in fact, they work just the same. Therefore, those items that you believe are inert are actually biologically active too. And so when you think of a computer, you think of an inert object. You've heard of biochips. You've heard of that, right? And we know, and I know for a fact, what Jeffrey Epstein and Elon Musk have been working on in creating that interface. And, you know, Elon kind of thinks the way people who are objective and find solutions think. But sometimes, as a human, he gets into these pockets of assumptions. A biochip doesn't necessarily mean that you need a neuron or a strand of DNA or a human cell. What it needs is biological interface. How? Well, hopefully uh, this introduction to quantum computing will help with that. In 1980, Russian-German mathematician Yuri Minin was the first to propose the idea of quantum computing. A year later, eminent physicist Richard Feynman presented a logical quantum computer model at the Conference on Physics and Computerization. The premise behind Feynman's model rested in the conviction that it would be impossible to conduct the simulation of a quantum system with the use of a classic computer. Feynman understood that the traditional engineering approach to the problem of computer development would never lead to a revolution. He based his reasoning on the laws of nature. Feynman's lectures from the last years of his scientific activities are considered by many to be a key moment in the development of quantum computer theory. Classic computers are devices that, with the use of transistors, process information in the form of sequences of various combinations of zeros and ones, known as computer binary language. In simple terms, a transistor is a type of switch. It can be turned on, which corresponds to binary one, or it can be turned off, which corresponds to binary zero. The grouping of transistors into special circuits, which are called logic gates, allows the computer to perform calculations and make decisions in accordance with a man-made computer program. The computer's processing power depends on the number of transistors used. According to Moore's law, today this power is doubling every two years. As of 2014, the commercially available processor processing the highest number of transistors is the 15-core Zion Ivy Bridge EX, with over 4.3 billion transistors. In the case of graphic processors, the world's record belongs to NVIDIA, which offers computer accelerators, in which the number of transistors exceeds 7 billion. Although this type of device is... No conventional solutions or improvements can compare with the endless possibilities offered by the laws of quantum mechanics. The quantum mechanical states of elementary particles, like transistor voltages, can be described in zeros and ones. Depending on the method used, we can apply various kinds of particles to the calculations. Here, the state described by the zeros and the ones is the internal angular momentum of the particle known as its spin. 
Although it's not possible to describe this particular feature through the use of classical mechanics, it can be likened to a magnetic bar capable of deviations. When the bar is pointed up, the state can be described by a value of 1. However, when it is pointing down, it can be described by the value of 0. In other words, spin up corresponds to the turned on switch, and spin down corresponds to the turned off switch. Using this analogy, we can describe the defined quantum states with the use of binary system, much like a classic computer. However, beyond this point, all similarity ends. The advantage of quantum computing mainly rests in the quantum mechanical feature, thanks which an elementary particle can be in multiple states simultaneously. This type of phenomenon, called superposition, occurs before the measurement that defines the particle's permanent state. Before the measurement, when there's no surrounding noise, the elementary particle experiences superposition, manifesting its quantum ability to occupy multiple particle states at the same time. Thus, in accordance with the principles of quantum physics, a spin of exemplary particle may, in a parallel manner, indicate all directions at the same time, forcing us to describe it with zero and one simultaneously. Thus, unlike the classic computer, where the basic unit of information is one bit, expressed by just one number in binary notation, in the case of quantum computing, information is expressed through a quantum bit, i.e., so-called qubit, which is described by both zero and one binary units simultaneously. Working with qubits provides us with incredible new possibilities for the effective processing of databases beyond what we could have ever before imagined. So I'm going to stop right there and just kind of throw a lifesaver. So for those of you that have seen the episode where we talked about one atom having two roles, that it was in a waveform in the frequencies, if you remember, if not, watch it again. How could one thing be two things at the same time? We've talked about duality a lot. And quantum computing, I want you to, if you can and you're not driving, um, close your eyes and imagine an atom. Now, in that atom, uh, that atom, oh, let's take the simplest one, the hydrogen atom. Hydrogen atom is just a ball. I want you to envision it like a ball. It really isn't, but it's just pretend it's a ball. And around that ball spins one moon. So think of it like the earth and the moon as hydrogen. Um, and it spins around the earth, right? And this is how an atom has its electrons spinning around it. Now, depending on if the electron is being influenced by other things like water, for example, that moon might not be, you know, from the equator north, right? It might be dead center to the equator spinning around the earth. Or that electron, which is the moon in this example, uh, because it's got chlorine near it, may be spinning, uh, you know, 70 degrees below the equator. So then it's going to be spinning in another direction. So I want you to understand that the state of an atom, this superposition, is its ability to be spinning, having its electrons or its energy, if that helps better, um, spin at different states at the same time. Uh, so there's infinite amount of possibilities.
I hope that helps you. Now, the binary side of things in computing, it's either yes or no, one or zero, one or zero. In quantum, it's like everything is possible. It's zero and one at the same time. I want to, uh, this is a very, this is, this is a very pedestrian example, but unfortunately PhDs see it like this too. And I'm not an official PhD, but I still criticize them and tell them they're wrong. Uh, it's an infinite amount. It's not just zero and one. It's like zero to infinity all in one spot. Think of it in relative to time. So Every single second that moves forward, there's an infinite amount of possibilities. You can move dead straight, you know, at zero degrees, or you can one, two, three. Well, then that gives you a set of degrees of 360. But I'm just saying, there's an infinite amount of possibilities what direction you may take in the next second. The next breath you will take, the next thought you will have. And even raising your hand is almost split second. Why? Because your brain has already had the infinite possibilities of how you might want to move your hand, move your mouth, move your eyes, and it's already had it. All of these predictions have happened of where it can go, infinite amount. So even though this um, nutshell documentary is giving it to you as a one and zero at the same time, I want you to remember that one and zero is zero to infinity, okay? It's inf infinite amount of solutions, kind of like time. There's infinite amount of futures, depending on the collective choice of that at the same time choice. So if you're at one spot and you have choices one through 10, if everybody picks choice five, then the direction you will go is choice five. Hence why I speak of resonance. Now, this is the same thing about computing when you're thinking of something. How you recall information, how you put together information, all has to do with you computing everything at the same time. When you make a decision, a split-second decision, you don't even realize that you have gone through an infinite amount of possibilities in your brain to come up with the action that you will do. Because you can't even feel that's how instant it is because your mind has already played out all those scenarios. And so I say reason is the advocate for self-preservation. This is where you slow down your thought process. Your gut is your quantum computer. <laughs> it is your infinite possibilities giving you the answer, the right answer all the time. And we've lost the ability to do so because we process information in a binary fashion. I, I, I wanted to tie that in to how and why I keep telling you trust your gut and that, well, you'll see. To better illustrate the significant advantage of working with qubits, let's consider the example of all possible combinations of the two-bit data system. We have four possible states, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 1, 1, 1. A two-bit classic computer can at the most simultaneously perform one of these four possible functions. In order to check all of them, the computer would have to repeat each operation separately. A two-qubit quantum computer, due to the phenomenon of superposition, is able to analyze all of these possibilities at the same time in one operation. This is due to the fact that two qubits contain information about four states while two bits only contain information about one state. Thus, a machine with Freedom of speech is not about what you say, it's about what you can access. Remember that. Keep that in mind as you watch this and relate it to how you have evolved with access 
to information, not spoon fed to you in ones and zeros, but having you seek and collect that data and process it yourself. Early prototypes of quantum computers were comprised of test tubes. Scientists Neil Gershenfeld, Isaac Wong, and Mark Kubinets made use of the phenomenon of nuclear magnetic resonance to create the first quantum computer model. The model was comprised of a test tube which contained chloroform particles. The apparatus was placed in a constant magnetic field. That helped the scientists to focus on the interactions between the spins of hydrogen and carbon, which acted as a logic gate. The programming was conducted with the use of radio impulses of particular frequencies. All right, so let me assign this to the collective. How many times have I said that the results of what is to come or the action is done by your outside interactions? So as you see here, we have um, um, uh, HCl3 uh, chlorine, which is negatively uh, charged. Uh, carbon has four seats, meaning four electrons that it can bind to. Hydrogen has one. And you see how they sit. Now, chlorine is actually negatively charged in this case, meaning that they're seeking another interaction from another um, atom, let's just say, that may be floating around. But what this is showing you is that frequencies and external influences uh, change the state of how carbon and hydrogen interact with each other. But nevertheless, really, really, really hard to fathom it is hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, <laughs> and phosphorus. That's the, that's the backbone of your DNA. If you take a microscope and you can scope yourself down to zero, you can hone in on one of those atoms. You're just atoms resonating at the same frequency to create a whole solid. You're not really, really, really solid. Solid. It's just those combinations like you see between a chair, uh, uh, another individual, you influence each other, regardless, regardless. Which resulted in variation of spins. Computers from University of New Mexico claim that these early computer models were nothing more than classic simulations of quantum computing. The possibility of actually developing such a system for practical applications is not readily conceivable. To develop a fully efficient quantum computer, certain requirements must be fulfilled. One of the most important is to create appropriate conditions under which it would be possible to manipulate qubits while allowing them to maintain their unique properties. It is a very difficult task that requires great precision and special equipment, but doing so would give away to a plentitude of possibilities offered by the fundamental laws of nature. However, in a macro world such as ours, there are many obstacles to the development of quantum systems. One of the biggest problems faced by scientists working to develop quantum computers is the issue of decoherence. Each elementary particle is subject to wave-particle duality, meaning that sometimes it behaves like a particle and other times it behaves like a wave. The particle behaving like a wave is subject to a phenomenon known as unitary evolution, which is described by Schrodinger's equation. It's a state in which noise from the surroundings, i.e. decoherence related to, among others, thermal energy is not sufficiently large enough to trigger the leakage of very susceptible quantum information. 
such evolution of entanglement and mutual decoherence may be analyzed and controlled in time, which allows for the processing of information in a completely new way. Additionally, it is essential that the qubits remain in the state of quantum entanglement only with each other, forming a coherent system in which the exchange of quantum information may occur between them. Unfortunately, our surroundings are comprised of elementary particles, which only serve to disrupt the precision of quantum processing. Such uncontrolled entanglements of qubits with the surroundings outside the system could lead to a leakage of important information. Consequently, it's essential to isolate and cool the quantum computer processor where the calculations take place. The cooling of the processor to extremely low temperatures near absolute zero helps to calm the qubits by propelling them into a state of extremely low energy levels and, as a result, makes them easier to control. Cooling is also important due to the fact that some of the superconducting materials used in the construction of quantum processors and their unique properties can only be used at very low temperatures. So today we're going to end the quantum lesson there uh, because I'm going to share something with you on niobium. As you see, they're showcasing niobium. <laughs> and a lot of you probably haven't heard of niobium until today, and that's fine, uh, because information is always sequestered uh, in this realm, right? And so here's where it gets um, interesting. So obviously, a lot of you in your life have had dental work done, right? So dentists back in the day discovered that if they add niobium to alloys that they put on the teeth, um, you know, to for cavities or reconstructing, actually triggered regrowth. And it was really bizarre. They were stronger, but they kind of saw a trigger of regrowth. Well, uh, it's actually been found that there is regrowth of bones. So I um, did research in osteosarcoma using the knowledge I know in, you know, personal knowledge that I have um, that I, I choose not to share at this point. Um, certain inert, as we would call them, elements such as niobium or graphene uh, have really good biological interface. How? So I've explained the um, use of graphene in um, creating bookmarks, targets, and seams on your DNA when it's being replicated. Uh, what they put in uh, certain vaccines and certain uh, drugs uh, that you take are um, such as to manipulate your genetic code by inserting um, clippers. It's kind of like CRISPR tech, um, only more advanced nanomaterials. Now, one thing that I um, dabbled with and I was um, quite excited about was um, being able to work with a team out of, obviously, Brazil, um, <laughs> because that's where they get a lot of niobium. And uh, I only work with them on a question of, um, of this matter. And this was back in 2019 where I collaborated with a few uh, because I, I know well uh, how um, osteoclasts and osteoblasts uh, work. And um, what was found was, is that, and this is something that the World Health Organization also knows. This is something that a lot of people know. But apparently, if you break your bone 
and um, it, niobium is introduced um, into your body, uh, it promotes bone formation. You can regrow bone. Now, a lot of people have focused on ECM, a lot of videos, you should look at it, extracellular matrix. So if you chop your finger off, you put that powder on there and it gives the building blocks. But niobium, uh, as you know, gets thrown into alloys to strengthen them, reinforce their connections. But niobium in itself, in the way it's structured, it's, um, it's actual molecular, the, the, the actual atomic structure interacts with certain signaling within your body uh, for regrowth, this uh, endless pool of being able to regrow things. And um, one thing when it integrates with your skeleton, which I was highly suspect for for a while, is that it creates bone that is strong, heavy, but highly buoyant uh, because of the way it um, introduces itself into uh, the uh, whole process of triggering, triggering autogenous bone. And it doesn't compromise the quality at all. In fact, it gives it out of this world properties where the bones are extremely strong, uh, the, they're buoyant. So, you know, it means that, you know, you'd be able to throw a bone in the water and it could float. Um, but it's like titanium. It's very difficult to break uh, if it's been introduced into the area, which is incredible because it's bioactive when introduced. So uh, like I've said in other times, I think Elon Musk, you know, with this whole direct interface is doing it wrong uh, because there are so many elements and um, molecular software hacks that someone can introduce into the body that can create quantum computing without creating a quantum computer. Yet, though, as I've said before, as you see, quantum computing can come up with solutions almost instantaneously, depending on the qubits, right? Or how quick, how many, how many um, sections of process it has. Let's just put it like, uh, I don't know, seats to process information it has, right? That's, that's how they're explaining it to you. Well, think of it this way. If you had in your head all these seats to process information and you were able to process all this information, right? You want a solution to a problem. What is the first inherent thing that you do when you look at a problem? You look at your assumptions, right? You have an assumption, you have a predisposition. Hence, any solution that will come forward will be biased because you're looking at the problem with your eyes. I hope that kind of gives a little sneak peek into how quantum computing is indeed going to be coming through uh, in the future, but, uh, you know, just saying. Uh, I want you to know that um, this also has antibacterial properties, and um, that's quite interesting. Uh, the World Health Organization um, was always looking for ways of creating antibacterial uh, properties. This is where Epstein kicked in. 
And what was incredible was that these two scientists in China, Huan and Wei, back in 2013, found that um, if you added like a small percentage of niobium to stainless steel um, containing niobium uh, with um, antibacterial um, stuff like erythromycin incorporated in it, um, it would um, eradicate the ability for Staphylococcus to appear. So you could have like a stainless steel fridge, for example, or a pot that was automatically antibacterial forever because of the niobium. So the Chinese discovered that. The question is, why don't we have it if they discovered it, you know, uh, back in 2013? Nah. It's because there's a lot of technology you don't know about. Uh, so um, that's, you know, and that's actually documented. I think um, uh, the, it's, 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 it's one in, 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 in way, uh, Y U A N way W E I. Uh, and they discovered it in 2013. They worked with the who, and they're the ones that found that out. And they had results from work that they did where they took stainless steel that had erythromycin incorporated in it and found that, you know, staff just died on contact. So I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, you could have that in your toilet, right? We could have stainless steel toilets with niobium, and then we don't have that bacteria anymore. But why is it that, that we don't have it? See, there are synergistic effects with silver nanoparticles, antibiotics, biosurfacins, you know, there's so much out there that that people do not appreciate is there. And that's because um, you're not allowed to, <laughs> right? Because it's really, really hard to even find the majority of this research because it's sequestered in private labs. Uh, private labs hoard this information. And then, you know, when you see people like George Soros that are like a million years old or the queen that's been eight for like 30 years, you know, you're just like, well, how do they, how are they totally fine? How are they still here? You know, is this how they blackmail each other with the technology to be able to survive is a question that you should ask yourself. I mean, we all turn to pharma, but pharma's front facing. There is a whole, if there's a whole shadow government running the world, do you not think that there's a shadow pharmaceutical slash medical industry that's keeping the health of those that run it for a while. I'm just putting that idea out there. Uh, so it's important for people to have an open mind when you think of technology and uh, what you're allowed to see and understand. And remember, the free speech is not about uh, <laughs> uh, what you are um, saying. It's about what other people may be listening to. And, and that is their concern more than anything. Uh, so for those of you on Twitch, uh, right after this uh, song, we're going to rate a channel. So I'm going to be picking that channel soon. It's at random. I wanted to kind of introduce you to that um, quantum compute, computing uh, portion so that you can just let that percolate for a bit. And the reason I'm telling you this is because without you knowing it, you have started in this era right now that we are in to understand how your mind works and how um, upset you are that you haven't put all the data that you've collected 
into use. Now you have this data, but it was always accessible, as you saw. Uh, there were impeachments of Bush for, uh, you know, voting in discrepancies, uh, for discrepancies. The same tools that Bush used, the Democrats use now, there's precedent on that. Obama used armed forces to intimidate people in voting polling stations. We're talking 2014 times. We're talking 2010. We're talking 2012. And, and people seem to forget. It, and it's not so much forgetting. It's, 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 it's quantifying that data in your mind and, and, and um, filing it away. Because now when you look at tweets or news, something goes click and you're like, wait a minute, I heard this before. You're starting to understand that the digging the questions, the going down rabbit holes is exactly what has triggered you to think and see better. Uh, so on that note, I will leave you guys with, um, you know, one of my favorite tunes. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just wanna start 